So we're going to start today by jumping all the way back to Genesis. Okay, so we're going to do the whole Bible today. You ready for this? Just kidding. I did do a sermon one time called The Whole Bible in Under an Hour at DPC. It was 59 minutes and like 56 seconds. We got it in though. Anyway, we're going to do that today. Not really. We're going to, do part, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And when you read the, the, the first part of the Bible, there's like the creation story. The very next section is, you know, the part with Adam and Eve. And when you read the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall, you, there's something really interesting that happens. Um, one of the things that's interesting has to do with food. Now, somebody pointed this out a while ago. I had read this text like 100,000 times. I never realized this. But the text makes a specific point to show that God told Adam and Eve, you can eat all this fruit. Look at all this stuff I have. Apricots and grapes and uh, pomegranates, if you've got a couple hundred hours to pull those things out. right? Just don't eat that one over there. right? But God spent time telling them about the food, what they were allowed to eat and not eat. There's a lot of other things, if you think about it, the book of Genesis doesn't mention at all. You think these are the first people ever. They're probably going to want to know how to do some things, right? God never, there's no section in the book of Genesis where God tells Adam and Eve where to go to the bathroom. He never tells them what to do with their free time when they're not gardening or naming the animals or whatever it was that they were doing. He never teaches them how to swim, right? Swimming's fun. Diving board, I'm sure there was somewhere to swim in the Garden of Eden. He never tells them to exercise. There's a lot of just normal life things that God never mentions to Adam and Eve. Or at least if he did, it's not recorded. But what is recorded is food. He tells them this is where all the food is. The idea is, we see this through all of Scripture, eating is very special. Eating is important. And every meal that Adam and Eve had before the fall was a meal in the very presence of God. It was fellowship with the Creator who gave them the food. And although the fall has marred us, you know, has like uh, built sin into the world, that idea of the importance of food is still there. And so we see this a lot throughout Scripture, right? Like there's a part that a lot of people just go real fast over at the beginning of the whole Sinai, God giving the law. But he actually has a meal with a bunch of the leaders, like a bunch of the leaders come to the mountain and have a meal. Um, we talked about Passover. You know, God told them, we did a whole sermon on Passover last week. God told the people, I want you to remember this every year. I want you to celebrate this Passover. There were a bunch of other feasts and festivals that all involved food. Um, there was a story of David. King David becomes a, the king, and he asks, hey, is there anybody left from Saul's house? And they find this guy, Mahishbosheth. Mahishbosheth? Um, that's pretty close, I think. Yeah, great baby name, yeah. <laughs> uh, David invites him to the palace, and he thinks he's going to get killed, you know. And he's like, hey, because um, I loved your, your dad or whoever it was, who I forget how he was related, I want you to um, join my house every night for food. You're going to be part of the king's table, right? Which was a pretty important thing to be invited to the king's table. It's actually why, when I was a kid, the all-you-can-eat buffet in Santa Cruz, where we went, was called the king's table. And it was pretty disgusting, but I loved it because I was a kid. You know what we used to do was not really eat very much food. And then, just until our parents wouldn't be mad. And then we had to see who could eat the most of those ice creams from the swirly thing, you know. Uh, <laughs> and um, my brother always won. Anyway, and then continuing with the theme of food and meals, this is why Jesus was always getting in trouble. Remember we said they accused him of a lot of things, but one of the things that was actually true was he eats with sinners because eating is a very communal, intimate kind of a thing. And this is still true in our culture today. Right? Think about dating, first dates. If you have a first date or just any date really, like a dinner date is more serious than the coffee date, right? Do I got that right? It's been a while since I've been on a date with the... Uh, you know, it's been, I don't know, 20 years or something. It's been a while, right? So, but I think that's how it still works, right? A dinner date is pretty important. Or we do at the White House, right? They do state dinners. They invite foreign dignitaries and presidents and prime ministers and whoever to the White House. Did you know there's a, I don't know if it's still there, actually. I think it's still there. There's a bowling alley at the White House. 
Now, we never invite foreign dignitaries over for a state bowling tournament. Bowling's fun, but like, that's not what we do. We invite them over for what? A state dinner, and everybody gets all fancy. And just all over our culture, right? All of our family holidays revolve around food, don't they? Think about it. Easter candy and ham. Mm, I love a good Easter ham. My dad always goes to that honey-baked whatever place, you know? Those guys know how to make a ham. You only make one thing. I don't know how they stay in business all year, but, um, right? Or Thanksgiving. What do you think of? As soon as I say Thanksgiving, what do you think of? Turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes. Or Fourth of July. You think of a Christmas goose? Is that still a thing people do? No, but I don't think... (laughs) That's a thing, right? Christmas goose from back in the day. We still, everybody probably eats different stuff, but we still eat together at Christmas. When you think of football, you think of wings. Baseball, you think of garlic fries and crazy crab sandwiches. Yeah, right? We, we're, we love food. And there's actually like been a bunch of sociological research and stuff where people have looked at couples specifically and families who eat together are just in general way healthier than families that don't, that sit around and watch TV when they eat or whatever. And I mean, there's a lot to that. But in general, it's true that families who eat together are healthier because for whatever reason, food is like glue for relationship. It binds people together and it keeps them together. Because it's, That's how God built us. And so that idea of food and stuff sort of sets the stage for today, right? Knowing that food is such like a tactile way for us to build connection, God has given us, his people, a meal. And last week, we talked about Passover. And we talked about how God used Passover to point forward to the ultimate example of the Passover in Christ. Today, we're going to talk about that, the Passover 2.0, right? The Lord's Supper, communion, the bread and wine. The early church called it the love feast. And we're going to read, so we're going to do this a little different. Usually what we do is we spend a whole bunch of time of the sermon in the text, and then we have a little bit at the end where we talk about a few things. We're actually going to flip that today. We're going to hopefully fly through the text, and we're going to talk about communion. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper um, and how Jesus gave his people this meal. We're going to talk about why um, it's so important for our spiritual growth. So let me get the slides here real quick. Um, verse 14. We're in chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, at table, and the apostles with him. So in the book of John, John picks up this phrase, the hour. And when the the gospels talk about the hour, it always means like Jesus's time to to die, to be sacrificed, right? The cross. That's the hour, right? Like when uh, one example is the wedding at Cana. And Everybody wants Jesus to do this big, giant miracle. And what he says is, no, I can't because my hour has not yet come. And he does the miracle quietly because he's like, it's not time for me to make a big show and become the, you know, it's not time yet, right? So the idea is the hour is this whole passion narrative. And so Luke says, when the hour has come, you know, I think that's more than just the hour for the feast. It's sort of, this is kicking off this whole thing. And they reclined at the table. Now you've seen the, aren't they sitting in chairs at the Last Supper? I should have looked at it, right? And they're all sitting on one side of the table. You ever wonder about in every sitcom, why don't these families ever sit on different sides of the table? Because the camera angles, you know? They're always on one, the whole family's eating dinner on one side of the table. It's very odd. Anyway, the Last Supper picture, right, is like that. That's not really how this was. What this would have been, probably with 12 people, would have either been one very long table, kind of like the Last Supper, or maybe even sort of a, a shorter, boxy table, but it would have been very low to the ground. Okay, this isn't like a dining room table with fancy chairs. And then they throw a bunch of pillows kind of around, and everybody sort of leans on each other. And there's one part where we're told actually in the book of John, I think it is, that John is leaning on Jesus, right, when this meal happens. So this sort of eating was very intimate, right? All the food was in the center. Um, The one example I always give people is if you've ever had like, what is it, Ethiopian food, I think, where there's a bunch of different... Uh, dishes, sort of. Okay, I don't know a word to describe it besides slop. That sounds nasty, but it's like a bunch of slop in the middle, right? And it's all fantastic. And then you get this bread. You guys, the, the bread in Ethiopia, it's magic. 
right? It's like spongy. Oh, it's so good. And you take the, you rip it off, and then you swipe it through the slop, and then you eat it. And then the guy next to you does the same thing. It's like the episode of Seinfeld where they get in a big fight because George is double dipping the chip. You can't double dip the chip. And he does it right in front of the guy again. In our culture, double dipping is not okay. We're trying to teach heaven. You know, don't double dip. Okay, in their cult, in like Near Eastern culture, especially back in the day, it was a lot like Ethiopian food is today. It was very intimate and communal, and you're swipe, swiping food like that, and you're all kind of leaning on each other. So Jesus is having this meal, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus has been looking forward to this moment. Um, one of the commentators said something along the lines of, like, this meal for him wasn't the beginning of the end. Or you think he's about to die and whatever. It's not the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the beginning. <laughs> what he means by that is, like, this, is kick it, this weekend of his death and resurrection is going to kick off this whole kingdom. And Jesus is excited to sort of to get started. And, uh, but he knows that to get through that, he has to suffer. He's very upfront about what's going to happen. I'm going to do this before I suffer, right? It's sometimes probably tempting for us to think of the deity of Jesus as almost like a firewall against real suffering. You know, yeah, he went through the cross, but he was God. I'm sure it wasn't as bad. No, it was worse, right? This is the perfectly sinless human being, and we're going to read about this next week, the agony in Gethsemane, right? You know, Lord, if you will, take this cup from me. And he's like, he's really struggling through this. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So one of the things they, Josue, I'm going to teach you that we're going to get into this a whole bunch, right? Uh, when we do our five months on preaching or whatever in our time, Josue and I hang out on Mondays and talk about being pastors and stuff. Uh, but one of the things they say with preaching and just Bible study in general is when you find a theme, so the theme today is meals, right? Food, celebrating meals, communion with meals and food. Uh, what you do is you find the beginning of the thread. So Genesis, we did that already, right? God in the garden eating with, and you pluck the thread all the way along until you get to the end. Now, what a, the mistake a lot of believers make when they read the Bible is they think we're at the end of the thread already, but we're not, right? Communion is not the end of the thread. The end of the thread is in Revelation 19. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, that's the exciting part. That's the end of the thread. It's not communion. It's the, the meal that we're going to share with God in eternity. Eating in the presence of God, just like before Eden, but even better, because there'll be more people and we've been through all of this together, and we'll be communing with God. And it'll be perfect. We'll be free from sin. See, the other thing is, sin has marred our meals. Let me give you a couple of ways that this happens. First, there's people like, if you've ever had lunch with me or Melissa, you know we can't eat anything, and we hate food. And it's very depressing. And we always say to each other, I can't wait to be dead. I'm going to eat so much, and then fill in the blank. Right? And every now and again, we go and we just have a big meal and we just eat whatever we want. And then we feel terrible for two weeks. And that's where we are right now because we took heaven to Tommaso's for her birthday. <laughs> now me and Melissa both feel like we're dying. So there's that. The second way is we're still selfish when we're eating and we're thinking about ourselves, right? And we think, have you ever done this? Have you ever counted the slices? You know what I mean? Who knows what I'm talking about, Right? Because you're a fallen and sinful, broken person, and you're like, he already had two. He already had three slices. He looks like he's about to go for that fourth slice, but I only had two. So even now, our meals are fallen and sinful. In eternity, it won't be. The marriage supper of the Lamb, right? It's going to be perfect. Verse 17. So Jesus is looking forward to that, and he says, I'm not going to take communion until that meal someday. He's going to take it at the, the, the Last Supper, which is like the first communion, and then he's not doing this with us. Jesus in his physical human body doesn't take communion in heaven. He's waiting for us to come up to take it with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In verse 17, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not, only, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So next he takes... Um, he takes a cup during the meal. Now, uh, if, 
We went over some of this if you were at um, Monday Thursday this year, uh, earlier this year. Uh, but basically, in the traditional, it's changed a lot since, but in the traditional first century sort of Passover ceremony, um, there were four cups. So there was a cup that you would drink at the benediction, like the opening part. The second cup was the um, explanation of the Passover, and then they would sing some songs, and then they would drink the cup. The third was then they would eat the whole meal, and then after that there was a cup. And then fourth, they would do the ending songs, and there was a cup sort of at the end of that. So this cup is probably this first cup that Jesus picks up is actually probably one of the first two cups. Um, he actually, during this meal, does this twice, though. Luke shows us. Watch. You'll see this. So there's actually a second time he picks up the cup as part of communion, and that's probably the third one that was after the meal. All right, let's keep going. So verse 19, and he took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the interesting thing that everybody points out and notices here is in all of the descriptions of the Passover that Jesus had with his disciples, it's never mentioned that they ate a lamb. We are told they sacrificed a lamb because we read about that last time, I think, where Peter and them, you know, we talked about that. But the, the gospel writers specifically leave out the lamb. And they, it's not that they didn't eat the lamb. They did. It was part of the thing. But the reason they do that is they're painting a picture, right? Is that Jesus as the final Passover lamb, right? We're not going to need that lamb that they're eating anymore. And so what he does then is he takes bread. This was from Exodus 12. Uh, this is bread without yeast in it. So they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, uh, and it goes on, right? But the unleavened bread, the bread without yeast, and the idea was, uh, well, two things. Yeast in the Bible represents sin. It's like a picture of sin and the way it grows and that sort of thing. The second thing was in the Exodus story, uh, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. The yeast do whatever. I'm going to be honest. I don't make bread. I don't know how that works. Because you know where they sell bread is at the store, and you can just buy it. <laughs> uh, but they, they didn't have time for that. So they eat it every year to remind themselves of how quickly they had to leave. And so Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Now, in what sense is the communion the body of Christ? We're going to talk about that in a whole bunch in just a minute. We'll get back to this. But I want to read to you, you know, the verse I read every week when we do communion. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Luke says, um, this is my body given for you, Paul says, which is, you know, remember they're all translating from Aramaic into Greek, so they're all translating it a little bit different. But the idea is Jesus' body was broken for you. It was given for you. His death is substitutionary. He didn't die for himself. He died for somebody else, for us, for his people, in our place. And then Jesus gives the command, do this in remembrance of me. He intended for this meal to be repeated, just like Passover, until it's no longer needed. We're not going to take communion forever exactly the way we do it now, I don't think, because eventually we'll get to heaven. We'll have the fulfillment of this. And so Jesus intends for his people to do this until that meal, to remember where their salvation comes from, not from good works, not from the merit of the saints, not from holiness or perfection, right? We're saved by his substitution. And then verse 20, the last verse. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, so this is that other cup, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So again, this is probably the third cup that they would eat after the meal. They'd tell the whole Passover story. And then Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? This, if you remember the Passover story, the people, they sacrificed the lamb. They took the blood from the lamb and they smeared it. That's kind of disgusting if you think about it. Isn't it kind of gross? Could you imagine, like, taking blood from an animal and smearing it all over your front door? It's a very vivid picture. And so Jesus says, you know, it's like the blood, except now there's a new covenant. That was the old covenant. This is the new one. And this time, instead of the blood of that lamb, it's my blood. My blood is what will inaugurate this new covenant. And so all of them together, they took the meal, they ate the bread, they drank the cup, and after the death and resurrection, and then the ascension of Christ, these apostles, these guys, 11 of them who were here because Judas hangs himself, but these 11 guys, they taught the followers of Jesus to keep it going. 
So they all got together as a church the next year or whatever, you know, when a couple months later, and they all start taking communion together. And this is kind of cool. For 2,000 years-ish, I'm roughly 2,000 years, the church has been doing it, taking a piece of bread, drinking the cup, waiting for the Lord to return. And so every week when we take communion, we're participating as a link in that chain. Right? It's pretty amazing. that We're doing something that's been going for 2,000 years. If you think about it, actually, I mean, that, by the time Jesus was doing Passover, that had been 1,500 years, I said last week, they'd been doing this. You know, now Passover has been 3,500, but, you know, I mean, it's like a long time that we've been doing this. Now, church folks, though, so that's the text, right? Um, this rich theological idea, but like I said, church folks haven't always agreed on what we mean by the stuff in communion or how to take it. So what I want to do next is I want to walk us through some of this stuff. Okay, so if you had the U version thing or if you go to porchsf.com Sunday, is that right? Click the thing at the top. Uh, if you're following along in the U version, I have all these bullet points we're about to use, I think, right? Yeah, okay, good. I didn't actually look at it. Um, <laughs> uh, to talk about the theology of communion. So what I want to do first, oh, I'm also pilfering this, some of these lists. I didn't write. Some of these I wrote and some of them I didn't. Don't worry about it. This one's by a guy named Millard Erickson. So Millard wrote this one. Great name. Great baby name. Anyway, um, he's a theologian guy. So there are some things, though, to start out with. When we're talking about communion, the Lord's Supper, there are a lot of things that just basically everybody agrees on. Every Trinitarian church agrees on. So the first was that it was established by Jesus, right? We're not making communion up. All three of the synoptic gospels specifically say Jesus told us to take this meal. So within Catholic church, um, like Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox churches, and Protestant churches, so like Trinitarian churches, there's basic agreement. We didn't make this up. This is Jesus's idea. And so all three of these branches of Christianity, we celebrate communion in one way or another. The second thing is, and all of us repeat it. We do it more than once. Um, think about it. When Jesus told, like I said, told them to remember, do this in remembrance of me, is the assumption is that they would do it. They would keep going. And as we read Paul's letter to Corinth, where he talks about communion, one of the things he said, or he's, he's very upset that they're taking communion like all kinds of wrong ways. And, but the assumption is they're still doing it. This is a church, I don't know what's that, probably 30-something years later, 20, 30 years after this, and they're still taking communion. The third idea is that when we take communion, it's a form of proclamation. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in some form or another, every one of the churches that takes communion like this agrees that what we're doing is we're telling the story of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus both to ourselves and we're proclaiming it to the world, right? So as a guest walks into a church and they see us take communion, they're going to hear the gospel story. Fourth, it's spiritually beneficial. Okay, the point of communion in is not, you ever wonder why it's so small? You ever eat a meal that small? We call it a meal, don't we? We invite you to this table to take this meal. Really? It's like one little piece of bread and some juice. It's probably going to need second breakfast, you know? <laughs> because it's not a meal for your body. That's the point. It's a spiritual meal, right? And so, Every one of these groups agrees with this, right? Coming to this table, it unites us to Christ. It feeds the soul more than the body. Fifth, it should be taken by believers. Now, this one isn't 100% agreed upon, but it's like 99.9% agreed on by most churches, is that there are a few in our wing of church, like kind of evangelical Protestantism that go, we should let unbelievers take it as a form of evangelism. And then almost everybody else says, no, nah, man, that's not true. <laughs> so 99%, I would say, um, draws a, we call it the fence, right? That, you know, you should only take this meal as a follower of Jesus. Um, because to do something without being like this, without being a disciple of Jesus, is inauthentic. It's not who you are. And we don't want you to pretend to be something you're not. Jesus hates that. It's called hypocrisy. 
Okay, and then the sixth thing is it has a horizontal dimension. So what we mean by that is we, a lot of times we think of communion as like, oh, I'm united with Christ and we'll get into some of this. But it also, the reason we call it communion, we're communing with each other, right? You never take communion by yourself at home when you're doing your quiet time or you're reading your Bible in the morning. You know, you don't do it. This is a group activity. Because not only are you supposed to take communion and be reminded that the death of Jesus is the reason I'm saved, but it's also the reason that these guys are saved too. Right? This is what binds us together, is the grace of Jesus. Now, it would be lovely to, be, to go, and that's the end of the sermon. <laughs> Points of agreement. This is what we all agree communion is, but that's not the end of the sermon, right? We're going to get into the, some of the theological weeds here. We, I try not to do a lot of these like dense theological sermons, but you know, every now and again, we, I want to get one of these in. All right, so the first point of disagreement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you these points, then I'm going to give you the four major views of communion, and then I'm going to walk through all of these points and say kind of what do we believe at our church and in our wing. All right, so the first is the presence of Christ. In what sense does the, is, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body? How, how does that work? The second thing is what does it actually accomplish? What's the efficacy, right? So, um, uh, yeah, first, right, there's some options here, right? It has the power to affect spiritual change in us that otherwise wouldn't occur. So if you don't take communion, you're missing out on something that God wants to give you. Like, it actually imparts grace that you otherwise wouldn't get. The second option is that the Lord's Supper brings us into contact with Christ in just a deeper way, just like a lot of other things do. And the third option, and we'll get into some of this in a minute more, but it's just a memorial. You're just remembering what it is that God has done. So what is communion actually? Like, does it actually do something to you? Is that one? The third is proper administration. Can only a priest or a pastor or an elder stand up and say, we're going to take communion today? What about deacons? What about everybody else? Who should take communion? Right? Almost all churches agree this is for believers, but then that narrows. Some churches say, and only for baptized believers, or only for folks who have been through our catechism or our confirmation or that sort of thing. Fifth, what, what do we actually eat and drink? What elements are we supposed to use? What kind of bread? Leavened or unleavened bread? What kind of wine? What about intinction? You know what that is, where you dip it? You know, where in, you take the bread and you dip it in or whatever. If a youth pastor is like Coke and Pizza's communion, should we fire this guy? Yes. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> and so you can see there's a wide variety of issues. That Okay, and I want to say this too. These issues that we're going to talk about, okay, are like, this is a family squabbles. Does that make sense? Okay, so when I say that guy believes this and this guy believes that and those guys believe this, what, don't hear me saying... And that's why they're not real believers. You know what I mean? Okay, so we're mostly talking here family squabbles between a few branches of Christianity. But all the people that we're going to talk about today pretty much are Trinitarian believers. They believe that there's God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they could come in here next week with us and say the Apostles' Creed. And we would all be like, yeah, that's what we believe. And then there's a lot of other stuff that we can get into. But this is kind of family squabbles. All right. So the first view of communion, so I want to get into these four major views. The first major view is by the Roman Catholic Church, right? The biggest church in the world. Um, and their view is what's called transubstantiation. And if you don't remember that, it's because you're not a real believer. It's very, just kidding. These big theological words. I'm going to give them to you, but you don't have to remember them. You can write them down if you want. Or you could just Google Roman Catholic view on communion. The first thing will pop up. Okay, so the Catholic Church, what they teach is that in the moment of the Lord's Supper, where the priest holds up the bread and blesses it, there's an actual metaphysical change within the elements. So basically, the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. So when they read, this is my body, what they think is, it means this is my body. As in, this is my body, you know, it's actually the body and blood. Now, the way this happens, boy, this really is like, White House bowling alley, right? Um, now, now, the way that they get around, they talk about this is kind of confusing. So there was a guy in the Middle Ages named Thomas Aquinas. And he took some of Aristotle's philosophy here, and he made this happen. So without getting into Aristotle's philosophy, basically, if you remember from philosophy one, you probably don't. 
But Aristotle said there's a difference between the substance and the accidents of an object. The substance is what a thing really is. The accidents are like how we perceive that thing, how, the, how it's seen by the world, its attributes. And those two can be different things. So what they teach is that the substance of the bread and wine literally change into the body and blood of Jesus, but the accidents don't change. So to us, it still looks like bread and wine, but at its core, the very core of what this thing is, it's the body and blood of Jesus. You can Google more about that if you want to read about that. But basically, they have a way to say, this is why it still looks like bread. And so, again, they believe when Jesus says, this is my body, he means this is my body. The second is our Lutheran friends. Now, what they believe is what's called consubstantiation. So Martin Luther uh, wrote a book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And in that book, he attacked the Roman Catholic Church on a bunch of different things, the medieval church, you know, uh, including the Lord's Supper was one of them. And uh, the main thing that he sort of attacked them on was the, the influence of Aristotle. He didn't like that. Bringing Greek philosophy is what he said into the thing. But Luther is really weird because <clears throat> what he did was he didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? He's like, I don't like your view. So what's your view? It's basically the same thing. <laughs> right? And so what he says is he also agrees. When Jesus says, this is my body, it should be literal. And it got to the point where there were other Protestants who had other views we're going to talk about in a second. And they had this big, like, meeting where they all got together and had, like, a weekend or whatever, and Luther was stubborn. And he's not the greatest dude in the world. I mean, he's, he's fantastic in, like, what he started, but there were a lot of rough edges around Martin Luther, and this was one of them. And he, he's like, no, it means this is my body, and if you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. Like, he was real, he really believed this. But then he said, but the Catholics are wrong, because that's what he said about everything. The Catholics are wrong. And so what was his explanation? So this is what he came up with, is, well, instead of the elements becoming the body and blood, he believed the body and blood go in and around the elements. So his illustration was, it's like water and a sponge. If you're holding a wet sponge, what are you holding, water or the sponge? Both. When you're holding the elements, you're holding the body and blood, and you're holding bread. So it's called consubstantiation. With, it's like, that's what that means. With, con is with, right? Okay, so that was Martin Luther's view. Can I be honest? Not really that well thought out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure those guys have thought it out since then, but I feel like, uh, yeah, he, I, I feel like he didn't either go far enough. I don't know why he went like one degree to the left. You know what I mean? Or just like he took the Roman Catholic view and went eh, just like that kind of. All right. Then the third view is the um, Calvinist sort of reformed view. Um, this just means this is a lot of those churches during the Reformation is what they believed. So like I said, a lot of, back to Martin Luther real quick, a lot of movements are started by a rash, bold people. You need like a bull to run into the china shop and shake things up, right? But then what happens in these movements is a more thoughtful, organized guy comes behind the initial guy who breaks the whole dam open or whatever, you know, uh, comes behind him and puts things together and organizes things. And in the Reformation, Martin Luther was that bold guy who ran in and just started smashing stuff. And then Martin, um, sorry, John Calvin and some of these guys came behind him and sort of put things together, put the Reformation together. Now, Calvin was a French theologian who escaped persecution in Paris, had to escape in the middle of the night. He ended up in Geneva for most of his life. He lived in Strasbourg for, for a little while. But anyway, this is his view on the Lord's Supper. This is what he says. Christ is present with his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Christ is present when we take communion. This is my body means Christ is really with his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. He comes down to us in our weakness, and he unites himself to us as we partake in communion. And so what he believes is something special happens every time we take communion. It's a powerful spiritual act, but nothing special happens to the elements. They're just bread and wine. Okay, so then um, Zwingli, another great baby name. Ulrich, no, that's his last name. Ulrich Zwingli, I think is how you say it. Uh, he was a, another Swiss reformer. Well, Calvin was French, but lived in Switzerland. But anyway, he was a Swiss reformer. He's the guy who got in the big fight with Martin Luther. And this is what he believed, that the Lord's Supper was a remembrance of the cross. It's a memorial. And like Calvin, he agreed, when you take bread and wine, nothing happens to the elements. Um, but he also disagreed with Calvin on the real spiritual presence, that God comes down in a special way 
with his people and the power of the Holy Spirit every time we take communion. He says, this is just us remembering what God has done. We just get together and we tell each other the story. And it's, it's about spending time remembering what's always been true. So what the special thing that happens, happens kind of in our minds. And so there's the four views, okay? Um, uh, there's also a few we didn't really get into. I didn't get into the Orthodox Church, the Anabaptists, but these are the kind of the four biggies, right? Now, let's go through these issues one by one, and let's talk about them real quick. The presence of Christ. Okay, so I think that both our Roman Catholic friends and our Lutheran friends, taking the literal interpretation, this is my body, uh, doesn't really make sense, kind of breaks down. Think about it. This is the easiest way to think about this. Think about the first... Last Supper? Wait, no, the first? Yeah, right. Think about the first communion there. Jesus is an actual, physical human being with a body. He had hair on his arms, a big beard. Probably smelled bad because nobody showered back then. Right? He's like a real guy. He takes a piece of bread and he says, this is my body, the bread that I'm holding. So the question is, how can Jesus' body be two different things at the same time. It doesn't really hold up. It makes so much more sense. Like, saying that this is literally the body and blood of Jesus sort of inadvertently, not on purpose, but inadvertently diminishes the theology of Jesus' humanity and his incarnation. Right? And so when we're talking about the presence of Christ, if it's not actually physically his body, and it's not the water between the sponge with his body, which one is it then of those last two? Is Jesus come down in a real spiritual way, in a way that he doesn't always during communion? Or is it just that we're doing this memorial, this remembrance of what, he done, what he's done? And I think the answer to that is, I don't know, kind of both, right? This is one of those things where they're saying two very similar things, and there's not enough biblical data to throw rocks at each other and say those guys are... I mean, both of those things kind of make sense. And so, does Christ show up when we take the Lord's Supper? Yeah, I think so. Right? We're being obedient. We're doing the things that he said to do. But are we also just sort of remembering what it is he's done because we're a bunch of forgetful nincompoops? Yeah, that's true too. Right? So, I think these views are actually very similar. Okay, the next thing is the... Um, what does it actually accomplish? Now, this, we're not going to get into a bunch, but this has to do with what's called sacramental theology. You heard that word sacraments before? Um, the best idea with sacraments are, in the EFCA, we call them ordinances, but some EFCA churches call them sacraments. But the idea is, it's something you do on the outside that displays an inward reality. So baptism. I'm dunking myself, or my pastor dunks me in some water, but it's it's sort of a, a physical picture of the spiritual washing that I've already had, right? And so communion is kind of the same way. So the question with sacramental theology is what do the sacraments, do they actually do something to you or is it just something to sort of remind yourself of an inward reality? Um, uh, what do they accomplish? I guess that sort of thing, right? So that's the first thing is when we're talking about efficacy, we have to, we have to come to a position on sacramental theology. Second, right? Um, there's a difference between what the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches about the sacrifice of Jesus and what all three of the other branches uh, teach. So, in, after um, the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church got together and they had a council. It's called the Council of Trent, and you can read about this. It's actually pretty fascinating stuff. As a response to the Reformation, what, do, what, do, what are we going to say to Martin Luther and these guys? And at that council, they reaffirmed a theology, it's called, I wrote it down here, the sacrifice of the Mass. And what they believe is that when you're taking Mass, it's sort of a continuation in a bloodless way of Jesus' bloody sacrifice. So there's like, Jesus' sacrifice is kind of this ongoing thing that is constantly imparted to the people who partake in Mass. And so what they believe is that the Lord's Supper is a part of that. And that's why the literal body and blood... Um, become a part of that continual sacrifice. And so, while we don't agree with our Catholic friends about that and the efficacy of the Lord's Supper, like, it doesn't accomplish a sacrifice. I think what we believe is something more along the lines of it points us back to the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made, and it helps us to go, wow, that was really amazing what it is that he's already done and what he's already accomplished. Okay, next is the proper administration. Who should institute the Lord's Supper? 
Who gets to stand up here and say, this is my body and my blood? In the Catholic Church, what they think is only priests, so even nuns don't get to do this. Um, And for a while, they actually didn't even give the wine to the lay people because if they believed it was literally the blood of Jesus, and they were afraid somebody was going to spill it. And so kind of taking it very seriously was why, you know, they didn't want to be flippant about the body and blood of Jesus. So originally only the priests drank the wine. They changed that with Vatican II. Um, In many Protestant churches, they sort of follow the lead of the Catholic Church. Only the pastor or elder is the one who should give out communion. And in some traditions, it's even only ordained pastors. So if you've not been through some sort of an ordination process, you don't get to give out communion. Um, In some churches, they say anybody can do it as long as they're a guy. Uh, In some churches, you know, we limit it different ways. But let's stop and ask this question. What does the Bible say about who can give out communion? Anybody want to take a shot? Nothing. Yeah, that's a pretty big goose egg there. It doesn't really say anything. And so... If we love Scripture the way that we do, I think it's very important to, do, like, to say this. And this is what I love about the EFCA. Major in the major, minor in the minors. And if it's not even in there, can we not? <laughs> you know? And I think the EFCA, the reason when I was planting the porch and looking around at denominations, it's one of the reasons I chose the EFCA, because I really believe they do that better than everybody else. And so in our denomination, the answer is pretty much anybody... Um, can give out communion. And I think, like one guy put it this way, I think the Catholic Church is right that only priests can give out communion, but the Catholic Church is wrong that only some people are priests, right? The Bible talks about a priesthood of all believers. And so that's the idea, right, is anybody could stand up here and uh, give out communion. I do think this, though. I kind of would go like a half a step further. I think Communion, because it's a thing that's only supposed to be done at church, is supposed to be done by the church. So I think in good regular practice, it's kind of pastors and leaders who are doing this. But, I mean, if I would have, you know, I'm going to get hit by a truck again, probably. Let's be honest. It's been happening quite a bit. (laughs) You know, someday I'm not going to be here. Does that mean, oh, we can't do communion. John's not here. Or Peter's in uh, China still, (laughs) you know. No, right? Anyway, so I I don't want to put sort of restrictions on it like that. Next is, who can take communion? Again, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say only baptized believers, only believers who've been through a time of catechism or confirmation, like in more Reformed or Catholic churches? Again, the answer is, it doesn't really say. And this is one of those wisdom issues. So what we do at the porch, and I think at a lot of churches, we do, I draw a fence. We call it the fence, right? And I say, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table. And then I don't check credentials at the door. Okay, so like, um, there's actually a story of Martin, um, not Martin Luther, John Calvin, and he got fired from the church in Geneva. And part of the reason he got fired was because there were a bunch of folks who were city council kind of people, and remember it was all intertwined back then, and they were taking communion, and he knew they were not believers and they were terrible, and they kept trying to take communion, and he kept telling them not to. Now, if I knew somebody said to me, hey, I'm an atheist, and I hate God, can I take communion? I'd be like, no, probably not, man. And that's what Martin, uh, sorry, John Calvin did. And there was this big like hoopla where it all blew up one day, and he literally threw himself over the table to block them from taking it. And he got fired over it, and that's why he was in Strasbourg for a few years, right? So basically, though, I'm probably never going to throw myself over the table. But if I did know somebody was really like, hey, I'm not a believer anymore, and I, I would, that would be a conversation we would have. But it, on a Sunday, I think we're going to leave it up to people, right? So that's who can take communion. What kind of elements should we use? What kind of bread? unleavened bread? Do we have to take unleavened bread at communion? No. Should we? Eh, maybe. I don't know. It was what they used at the first one, so why not, right? But there's no verse that says it has to be unleavened bread. What if you live in a place where it's kind of, they don't have the stuff to make? I don't know how, you know, I don't know. That's what you do. Um, What about the wine? Well, in the temperance movement and all that in the early, we had a real drinking problem in America, A lot of people think prohibition was just a bunch of cranky believers, but there were actually some sociologists who said basically it hit the reset button on drinking in America, and it was actually really good for our country. But that there were a bunch of those cranky old church ladies who were like, any wine is the devil, you know what I mean, kind of thing. Um, 
And so that sort of seeped into communion. Like, a lot of churches won't ever have wine. We can't do it. And I kind of like, we do mostly grape juice, one, because that's what these things come in, um, the little cups. Uh, but I think it's always good to at least have grape juice because there are a lot of people in our culture who struggle with drinking, and you would hate for somebody who has a 15-year chip to show up and accidentally take a drink of wine, right? So we want to be careful about that, but we also don't want to be dogmatic and, you know, ah, Jesus turned water into really fancy grape juice. You know, we're not those kind of people. The, what about intinction, right, where you dip it? You take the thing and dip it. Now, again, I mean, it's okay. There's nothing the Bible says you can't do it. I don't particularly like it because it's supposed to be sort of two halves, the body and the blood. It's kind of mingling it in a way that I don't love, so that's why we don't really do that here. Um, but again, they do it at first pres, and I'm pretty sure we're going to see those guys in heaven. So, <laughs> you know, what about frequency? How often should we take communion? Some churches do it once a year, uh, like right around Easter, I think they do it. The... Um, Catholic Church and a lot of Protestant churches like us do it uh, whenever they meet for church, right? And so uh, some do it kind of in between, quarterly. When I was a kid, we did it once a quarter at our church. Some churches do it once a month. Um, When I became the pastor at DPC, I moved communion to every week from once a month, right? So the dangers, right? If you do it every week, the danger is what? gets boring and monotonous, and you don't really take it very seriously. That's the danger. Not that it has to be that way, but that's the danger. The danger of doing it less frequency is we lose the beauty of what it has to offer, and we forget about the grace that we're supposed to be remembering. And so, I mean, when we look at the options, I think it's best to take communion every week. That's why we do it. But again, the Bible doesn't say. It just says kind of when you get together. Um, You know, you can interpret that a lot of ways. So that's the, the theology of communion. That's what it is. Let's sort of apply this now. Why, why do we take communion? Oh, did that all pop up at once? Pretend that's going one at a time. Don't read ahead. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, why do we do this? One, it's pretty easy because Jesus told us to. We don't really need a lot of reasons other than that one. Jesus said, hey guys, do this. That should be enough for us. Right? We want to be kind of obedient followers of Christ. So he told us to, so we do it too, but there's a lot of other reasons we do it as well. Because in communion, we receive spiritual nourishment. Communion is good for you. It's the broccoli of spiritual life, right? It feeds your soul. I, don't, I think broccoli is good for you. I don't know. I've never had it. <laughs> it's been a while anyway. And, uh, but anyway, the idea is communion, is, it, it, it feeds your soul. It helps build into you the idea of grace. It hammers grace deeper into your soul. Three, because we're participating in the Lord's death, right? When we take the bread, the broken bread, we'd see the the blood that was spilled, the cup, the blood that was spilled. We're we're taking two very, like, physical, tactile things and proclaiming to ourselves, not my body and not my blood, somebody else's body and somebody else's blood. Whose? The Lord's. I get credit for what happened here. It's like it happened to me, but it didn't happen to me. And so when we take this meal, we're participating in the Lord's death. We're getting credit for something that he did. Four, because we're strengthening our unity with each other. So not only am I getting credit for his death, so are you. And by sitting, like the temptation with church is for all of us to show up and pretend like we're not as bad as we are. Don't we all do that? We're all pretty good at that, right? Communion is supposed to knock that off at least a little bit. Because you're not as good as you pretend to be. You're terrible. And so am I. And the reason we're all here is this. It's his body and his blood was spilled for us. And when I understand that that's true of you and it's true of me, all of a sudden now we have this bond. And when we participate in a meal together, right? I said food is like the glue that binds people together. By participating in a meal... Not just me saying, hey guys, you're a sinner and so am I. But we're doing this thing together. It binds us together in a way that nothing else does. And then the fifth reason is because we're looking forward. Right? We're, we're, the Lord's Supper is about hope. Is that the speaker? Oh, I'm still on. All right. 
The, the Lord's Supper is about hope. We're living in an age where the kingdom has begun, but it's not yet reached its fulfillment. It hasn't reached the fullness. And when we, the kingdom people, the people of God, the adopted family, when we take communion, what we're saying is we're looking forward to the, the ultimate meal. Right? This is just the appetizers. Eventually, we're going to be in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to be in perfect communion with each other, perfect communion with God. And so, we live our lives with hope that the sin that's destroying me on the inside because of this body and blood is going to be gone. And eventually, I'm going to be perfectly united to Christ. When he says, this is my body, someday I'm going to be able to just look across the room and be like, that's his body. Right there. And we know from the, the Gospels, he still has the scars from the nails and the, the spear. We're going to be able to look at him and go, that's why I'm here. Not because of a piece of bread, you know, because of him and because of what he's done. And so taking this meal now is supposed to look us forward with hope. So I want to do is end with this long quote. I want to read this. This Millard Erickson quote. He wrote one of my favorite, like, theology books that I use a lot in church. I don't always mention him, but I read his stuff constantly. But I want to read to you what he says here. Okay, he says, this is his sort of summary about communion. Is it this? There. This is what he says about communion. How then should we regard the Lord's Supper? We should look forward to the Lord's Supper as a time of relationship and communion with Christ, for he has promised to meet with us. We should think of this sacrament not so much in terms of Christ's presence as in terms of his promise and the potential for a closer relationship with him. We also need to be careful to avoid the neo-Orthodox, don't worry about that, conception that for the true communicant at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a subjective encounter with Christ. He is objectively present. The Spirit is capable of making him real in our experience, and he has promised to do so. And this is the key phrase here, or sentence. The Lord's Supper, then, is a time when we are drawn close to Christ, and thus to come to know him better and to love him more. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. It's a time when we are drawn close to Christ and thus come to know him better and love him more.